Amen. Thanks, Andrew. Uh, I just uh, echo what he said. It's going to be an exciting week. And also, someone said to me, busy week coming up. I said, yeah, and it's going to be beautiful. So it's going to be an awesome week to be outside at the fair. So we hope that we'll, we'll see you. I'm excited to continue our conversation today in Storyteller. We've been in this sermon series for a few weeks now. We have this week and next week, and then we'll shift gears and, and kind of round off things in Luke as we get to the end of the year and kind of have that conversation. So we've got a couple more parables and then we'll shift gears a bit. And I'm excited to have this conversation today. And I think it's interesting and important for us to just remember as we're looking at these parables, why are we looking at the parables? Why are they something that we land on? And, and parable itself is a very churchy word. It's a Christian word. And it just means that there's an earthly story that Jesus tells to give us some heavenly meaning. Um, as I process this, I thought about times where either I went to visit another country or, or something like that, or somebody else went to visit another country. And sometimes when you go and you visit those spaces, you come back and you try to explain to somebody what it was like. They ask, what was that like to be there or to do that or to engage in this? Or if somebody asks you that and you've got to try to explain to somebody what it was like to be in that place or that location or experience that thing, and they weren't actually there. And so in these cases, what Jesus is trying to do is he understands the kingdom of heaven better than we could understand it, better than we could understand something that we can touch and feel experience for ourselves. And so he uses these elements, whether it's agriculture or relationship or business or whatever, and he says, let me help you understand something that you haven't experienced quite, or you've experienced some portion of it, but you don't quite get all of it. And so he's been having these conversations, and remember that the gospel authors, Luke and others, as they thought about what they were going to write, they said, these are the important stories to know. And so there may have been other stories Jesus told, but it's interesting that multiple times certain stories get remembered by different gospel authors. And so they include these stories, and they're ones that are important for us to process and understand. And so we've got a couple of them left we're going to dive into, and I'm excited for the one we're going to talk about today. Um, and as we do that, this story in particular is going to be something where we can kind of have a conversation, I think, as a church family. There's, there's implications here for us in our personal lives, but there's implications for us as a church and how we think about what we're called to do. And so one of the things that's been fun is we've been, as school calendars have been back and people kind of settle into a normal routine, we've seen some people again, we've kind of been back in the same spaces. And as that tends to happen, one of the things I like to do every once in a while is, is also have a conversation about just where are we going? What are we doing? How are we getting there? And how does our church view how we're understanding the things that we're learning from Scripture. And I want to kind of dig into that a little bit and kind of help us understand where we're going and what our vision is for the future. As we've been having some of these conversations, I've sat a few times over the last couple of, or really over just the last month, and I've sat with some guys that get together. Some of us have coffee, and we talk about Scripture and things like that. I, I asked them this question, and then I sat with our elders, and I asked this question, and I'll just throw it out there, and you can process internally however you would. But what would it look like? This is the question I asked them. What would it look like for GFC to fail? What would that look like? And you might be like, that's a de depressing question, Pastor Corey, right? That's not exactly the most uplifting thing. And what I'm talking about when I think about this is not what would it look like for us to close our doors. That's not where I'm going. I'm not talking about close our doors like we don't exist anymore. GFC doesn't exist anymore. Like that, that's not what I'm talking about with failure. What I'm actually talking about is what would it look like for us to exist and continue to exist and not fulfill our mission? Like I don't know if you realize this, but churches can and do sometimes exist they continue to meet on Sunday mornings. They continue to have kids programming downstairs. They continue to show up at a fair stand, and yet they don't fulfill the mission they've been called to fill, fulfill. 
And so we ask this question, like, again, yes, not a very uplifting question, but here's why I ask it. Sometimes you have to ask what it would look like to fail so that you know where you don't want to end up when you're pursuing what you think you should pursue. So when you look at it and go, we don't want to go that way, it gives you guardrails and you say, I don't want to get worried about this or I don't want to get engaged in that. And so I'm going to keep my guardrails and that's going to keep me from accidentally going off course where we're going. So I've asked this question of them. And when I did ask this question, I got a few different answers. I got uh, someone said, if there was a tangible need in the community that we could help with, whether it's just manpower showing up and helping somebody, it's financial showing up and helping somebody, whatever. We see a need that we could help with and we don't. That would be a failure. And I agreed with that. Like if there's something that we can absolutely help with and we don't, that's a failure. We should jump in as the church in those situations and say, we're going to help in that space. And somebody else said, there was a lot of different answers, but somebody else also said, if we pursue what we want and not what God is calling us to. So if we look to build what we want, what we want to be, what we want to look like, what we want to value, what we want to make ourselves feel good, but it's not scriptural, it's not what God has called us to, then we failed. And I would say I agree with that as well. And I don't know what popped into your brain when I, when I asked this question, but there's all kinds of different ways we could go. And, and I think part of the conversation we're going to have today in this story has to do with kind of keeping those blinders on and going, where do we go? How do we get there? What do we want to focus on? And how do we make sure what we value is what God has called us to? And I don't know if you've noticed this. Uh, in the lobby, on the back wall, there's a giant sign that says hope has a name, right? That was our focus for the year. We haven't talked about that in a while. It's going to come back. So in a couple of weeks, we're going to round out the year there again. But next to that is uh, there are two smaller frames, and one is our mission and our values, and one is our code. And some people have come to me when they read the code, and they go, what's the code? Like, what does that mean? The code is simply a way for us to understand and think about how we would look at Scripture and say, how does that come for us? Like, what would we look at and say, we want to be this? And all of, the, all of those phrases on the code have verses next to them. Like, they're right from Scripture. They're ways that we would want to pursue our community and pursue Jesus in our context. But one of those things that's on our code simply says this, success is measured by multiplication. Success is measured by multiplication. Now, you say that in a church setting, and some things can just go different ways. Like thoughts can just ha happen and go different places. You could think, okay, well, are we just worried about numbers? Because if people are just worried about numbers, sometimes that gets a bad rap, and we're just worried about that. What, what does that mean? But really, when we think about it, and this is where we would say we believe this is a biblical conversation, and we'll see that in our, in our story today, that we would say our goal is always to make disciples. And what Jesus calls us to is to pursue that. And so when we think about what's our goal as a church family, what we would want to do is we would want to multiply the things that Jesus has called us to multiply. And so then the question is, what is that, and how do we do it? And we want to dive into that today in Luke 19. So if you want to open your Bible, you can. Luke 19, we're going to start in verse 11. As always, the verses will be on the screen. You can also use our follow-along if you, if you scan the QR code on the screen or on the back of your Next Steps card. That'll take you to our follow-along on our website. We would love for you to go there. It's a great spot to keep up with the conversation. If you're watching at home live, you can do that as well. So in Luke 19, starting in verse 11, this is what it says. The crowd was listening to everything Jesus said. And because he was nearing Jerusalem, he told them a story to correct the impression that the kingdom of God would begin right away. Now, this is important. This one verse gives us a ton of context. I just want to unpack briefly. We're getting to the end of Luke 
Like this is 19, I think there's 24 chapters. So we're getting to the end. What happens at the end of Luke? Jesus goes and is crucified and then rises again, right? So he's coming to the end of his ministry and he's heading into Jerusalem. So he knows what's coming. Everybody else doesn't quite know. Now they should have some clues, but we see sometimes in scripture that the people listening don't always put the clues together, just like we don't. And so he's getting to the end. And there was this idea that pre-existed Jesus, that when the Messiah showed up, he was going to start the kingdom of God right away. And that meant overthrowing whoever was in power over the Israelites. That meant at this context, when people were following him and thinking, oh, this is the Messiah, they thought Rome was toast as soon as Jesus decided that they were. And so as time progresses and people are following him, this is the Messiah, we're getting excited. In the back of their mind, what was going to happen was he was going to kind of flip a switch one day and Rome was done and he would usher in the new kingdom and everything would be smooth sailing from there. But that's not the case. We know that here, but the people listening didn't know that. And so it says he, had, he wanted to tell this story because he wanted to correct the impression that the kingdom would begin right away. He knew what was actually coming very soon for these people was going to be very difficult to handle. They didn't realize they were going to have to watch him die. They didn't realize the trauma that was going to come with that. And so he says, I have to set them up so that they understand what's going to happen next and they know how to react to it. So in verses 12 and 13... It says this, he said, a nobleman was called away to a distant empire to be crowned king and then return. Before he left, he called together 10 of his servants and divided among them 10 pounds of silver, saying, invest this for me while I'm gone. Now, if you have a different version of the Bible or you've read a different version of the Bible, this is the same as the 10 minas or minas. I can never remember how to say that, okay? It's that parable. Okay, so if it says that in your Bible, you're not in the wrong spot. This is the same way. But in the NLT, this is just what it says. He took his servants divided among them 10 pounds of silver. So you've got 10 servants, 10 pounds of silver. They each get one. Okay, so verse 14. But his, his people hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we do not want him to be our king. Now, interesting, if you really want to get nerdy, I'm not going to go all the way there today. Jesus is actually using a story that happened in their space and time to commentate on what's going on. So there was actually a ruler who had to go away to get approved as king, and he was going to come back, and people were upset about that. So if you want to dig in, you can. But that's what he's doing. He's using culture to commentate on what's going on, help them get what they're talking about and how he's helping us understand the kingdom of heaven. So verses 15 and 16. After he was crowned king... He returned and called in the servants to whom he had given the money. He wanted to find out what their profits were. The first servant reported, Master, I invested your money and made ten times the original amount. Verse 17. Well done, the king exclaimed. You are a good servant. You have been faithful with the little I entrusted to you, so you will be governor over ten cities as your Reward. Verses 18 and 19. This next servant reported, Master, I invested your money and I made five times the original amount. Well done, the king said. You will be governor over five cities. Verses 20 and 21. But the third servant brought back only the original amount of money and said, Master, I hid your money to keep it safe. I was afraid because you are a hard man to deal with, taking what isn't yours and harvesting crops you did not plant. Now, You see the dichotomy between the first two servants and this servant. But this servant's response is kind of weird. Because, first of all, he's a servant, right? So what's the servant's job? He works for the master. 
The master is not the one out planting and, and then taking care of the crops. The servants do that. Like, that's what they're supposed to do. That's his role. But he kind of looks at him and says, I didn't do anything with your money because I think you're a jerk. That's kind of the way he says it. Now, you know, if you were talking to your boss and you said, I didn't do a good job because I think you're a jerk, how would that go? Not well, right? So not only did they not do anything with it, but their attitude towards the master, towards the boss, was that I don't want to do what you want me to do because I don't like you. So the attitude is off. Like this guy just, it's not just that he was unwise. He's got this attitude that is not going to go well with the boss. So going to verses 22 and 23, you wicked servant, the king roared, your own words condemn you. If you knew I am a hard man who takes what isn't mine and harvest crops I didn't plant, why didn't you deposit the money in the bank? At least I could have gotten some interest on it. So he goes, even if you didn't want to do any work, just put it in the bank and we would have been better off. But he didn't do that. 24 and 25, then turning to the others standing nearby, the king ordered, take the money from this servant and give it to the one who has 10 pounds. But master, they said, he already has 10 pounds. Verse 26, yes, the king replied, and to those who use well what they are given, even more will be given. But from those who do nothing, even what little they have will be taken away. Now, this story is pretty like hit the nail on the head. Jesus isn't unclear in this passage. And yet, I think there's some things in this passage that Give us a little bit of friction. Like, think about that last part, right? The guy who had 10, they say, take it from the guy who didn't do anything with it. Give it to the guy who has 10. Now, business-wise, it makes sense. Like, if you're a business owner and you have someone who's just cranking it out, doing super well, and you've got someone over here who just thinks you're a jerk, you're like, yeah, I'll take from you and give it to the guy who's going to do something with it. Like, that makes sense. But in a Christian perspective or from from just the way we process things, When God looks at someone and says, they're producing better than you, I'm going to take from you and give to that person, that almost feels not church-like. Like, Like it feels weird. Like, why would God take from him? Or like, if you, if we thought about this and we decided we were going to take from somebody and give to somebody else, like that, that idea feels kind of like we don't talk about that a lot. Or at least for me, I haven't been talking about that a lot or heard that a lot in church. And so what I wanted, I just want to say this. We, we talked about this two weeks ago with the shrewd manager. Here's the first thing I want to catch is that God cares deeply about the stewardship of our resources. Two weeks ago, we talked about the shrewd manager. Some of this is going to be overlap from that conversation. And it's interesting though, that that's the case. Jesus is telling the story. It's, it's one thing to go, why are we talking about this again? But it's another thing to go, look at what Jesus is saying in the same book, in the same timeline of just a little bit later. Like, it's over and over again. So Jesus, when he preaches this, that means Pastor Corey has to preach this, right? We have to go to that space and say, this is what Jesus keeps coming back to you, that God cares deeply about the stewardship of our resources. And here's the other thing that I think we get from this passage, is that God measures success by the multiplication of what he has entrusted to us. Again, I don't know how that hits you. But when you think about the story... And you think about how he gives everybody the same thing to start. And he comes back and how does he react to the people who multiplied it? He responds well. How does he respond to the people who didn't multiply, the person who didn't respond? Took it away. He says, what, what I've given you is important. Listen, God never does this in scripture. He never shows up. 
gives somebody something and then says, go have fun, it's yours. It doesn't exist. Now, I will say that doesn't mean God doesn't want us to have fun, have a good time, go on vacation, enjoy our lives. That's not, that's, that's in scripture. He does want us to do that. But he never says, here it is, go do what you want with it, and I never care what you do with it ever again. God always shows up and says, here's what I'm giving you. You've got a responsibility to it because I've given it to you. And it's really mine, not yours. This is hard. Because, again, I talked about this a couple weeks ago. We love being able to say, well, I earned this. It's mine. I want to do what I want with it. But the problem is that's not what God calls us to. And so he measures the success by the multiplication of what he has entrusted to us. This isn't just a, uh, a principle that we find just in Luke. It's not just him. It's not even a principle just in the Gospels. In fact, I'm going to give us another Gospel example. But if we go all the way back to Genesis 1. Right? Genesis 1.28 says this. Then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and what? Multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. Now you might say, well, yeah, Pastor Corey, they were the first two people. Of course, God wanted them to multiply because he wanted more people to exist. But I would just say to you, especially if you're a married person, how awesome would it be to just be the two of you living in paradise for a while? Come on, there's days where if you could just go live on an island by yourself, especially if your marriage is great and no one else could bother you, you'd sign up for that for a while. And yet God says to them, I'm getting a lot of nods right now. This is really funny. This is good. I'm hoping this is commentary on how good our marriages are. That's what I'm hoping. So, but God looks at them and says, I've given you a gift. I've given you a husband. I've given you a wife. I've given you a relationship. I've given you love. Do something with it. I've got a responsibility for you. And so he says, this is where I want you to go. And then if we go back to the Gospels, but a different Gospel, Matthew 28, verse 19, therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Who's he talking to? He's talking to the disciples about making more disciples. So he goes, multiply. Make more of you. And it's the last thing he says before he goes. This idea of multiplication is all throughout Scripture. And when something is healthy, God wants it to grow. And he wants it to multiply. And he wants a healthy relationship to create other healthy relationships. He wants healthy churches to create more healthy churches. He wants healthy businesses to create other healthy businesses. Like, he wants all of that to happen. Because when something's good and it's healthy and it's positive, he wants it to multiply. And we have that responsibility to make it happen. But here's the thing. There's a couple of hard parts that come along with that. And the first thing is, multiplication takes work. It is easy to sit back and just go, I've got what I need, I'm good. I don't need it. Now, you might say, many people don't think that way, they want to get more, they want more of a good thing, right? That, that's true. But it's going to take work. Sometimes we have to figure out how to multiply. This is, this is a conversation that, no matter how long you're in ministry as a pastor, you still sit around with other pastors and have conversations. How do we multiply well? How do we build disciples well? Because culture is always shifting. So you've got to figure out a way to how do we do discipleship in a culture that's different than what we knew five years ago. COVID did this on a mass level. Like we had to figure that one out in a millisecond and we didn't know what to do. I'll just be honest with you, right? We had to figure that one out. And so we've got to do the work of like, okay, what does that mean for me? How do I multiply what God has given me? And what does it look like for me to do that work? But here's the other side of it, is that multiplication takes risk. 
Now, this isn't like gambling. That's not what I'm talking about. But it's saying, I'm going to take the risk of being uncomfortable. I'm going to take the risk of not knowing what's on the other side. I'm going to take the risk of whatever this means. Right? It was about six years ago, five years ago, that Becca and I decided we were going to leave Gateway, where I had been the youth pastor, and we decided we were going to be part of a church plant. And so, I know, Kenzie, it was a sad day. So we, we, we thought about that, and we said we wanted to go be a part of this church plant. And what did that mean for us? That meant moving from our house. That meant planting a church. By the way, like 80% of churches that are planted don't exist like 10 years later. So you step into a space where we go, we had a paycheck, we had a job, we had people we loved, we had all kinds of stuff. And we said, we've got to figure out what the next years are going to look like. And we took that risk. It would have been easier, honestly, to stay where we were. But we said, we, we've got to step out and do something different. We want to pursue what God has for us. And that means not knowing what's coming next. That means it takes risk. Now, the amazing thing is that church is still going and it's doing great, which is awesome. And I'm so glad we were a part of it. I'm also super glad we're here. But we saw, we, we can still look back and go, those risks that we took to multiply, to create something that didn't exist because we felt God was calling us to, we still see the fruit of that. And so when we look at this, we go, it, we, it's easy to say, I just have what I've got. God gave it to me. I'm going to be happy with it. And just say, I'm not going to do the work. I don't want to take the risk. I'm just going to stay. But we also know anytime we take a step forward, whether it's a relationship, whether it's a business, whether it's whatever, it's going to take a risk and it's going to take some work. And so it's not different when we talk to God and when we say, what does God want us to do? Now, the question that comes into this conversation then that I think could be maybe swirling around is, how does contentment fall into this? Because there is a, there is a sense that when we're not happy with what we have, the, the Bible also calls us to be content, right? So when we think about that perspective, what's the difference? How do we, how do we balance contentment with what we've got and, being, and pursuing this idea of multiplication and calling that God has put on our lives? And, and so I would say it this way. Contentment is being thankful for what God has given you. So there, there's, God hands us each what we get. You have your life, I have mine. Different. The question is, are we, do we look at other people and go, oh, I could do more if I had been given what that person was given. Or I would be in a better spot if God set me up that way. Or if I had been born with those parents. Or if I had been born with that influence. Or I had been born in that house. Like, then I would be better at doing what God has called me to, but because he didn't equip me to do what I think I can do or I could do more with, I'm not happy with it. But if you look at the beginning of this conversation, there's not a lot of conversation about the 10 servants, but God said, here you go. You're all going to get the same. The question is, what are you going to do with it? And in a little bit, we'll get back to that conversation of what that same thing is that we've been given. But we can be content with what we've been given and thankful for what God has given us. But here's the thing. Comfort is hoarding what you've been given and not building God's kingdom. And I think this idea of comfort is one of the biggest temptations in Christianity, the church world. Just being willing to go, I've got what I got. I'm happy with it. And I'm just going to stay here. And it, and face value, we can go, I'm content. Like, you can be thankful with that. But when we get comfortable, we hoard, we keep, we, and I've told you this before. I, I worked for 1-800-GOT-JUNK for a while. I've been in hoarder houses. It is not good. So hoarding is not a good word. To hoard and to keep what you've been given 
and not build God's kingdom, to say, this is mine, God's given it to me, I'm not going to leverage it, I'm not going to multiply, I'm not going to go. And here's what happens with the person that's comfortable. Being comfortable with what we've been given will cost us the little we have. The third servant that came in said, I kept it for you. I held on to it. I didn't do anything with it. I kept it for me while you were gone. Here you go. Still there. He might have been hoping a little bit. Well, at least I didn't lose it. I knew where it was. But what does God do? He takes that and gives it to the person who multiplied well. So if we're comfortable with it, if we don't pursue what we think we, where we think we should go or what God has called us to, it could cost us the little we have. Now, while we're in the tension of this space before we wrap up things, Jesus ends this parable in a pretty strong way. And if we go back to verse 27 of Luke 19, it says this, And as for these enemies of mine who didn't want me to be their king, Bring them in and execute them right here in front of me. This is heavy when you think about what Jesus is talking about. Because you've got three, three parties in this, right? You've got the boss, you've got the servants, and you've got the people who didn't like him. Remember they sent a delegation, they said, we don't like this guy, we don't want him to be our king, we don't want to serve him. These are the people that Jesus says, then at the end the king brings in and he, he kills them, he executes them. Now, when you do the math out, what does that mean? If, if God is the boss and we're the servants, these are the people who deny Jesus. And this is the point where people who don't follow Jesus or have a problem with Christianity look at this and go, see, even Jesus is preaching this idea that if you don't follow God, if you don't fall in line with him, he's going to destroy you. And they would look at that, and, and maybe you're listening somewhere right now, you would look at that and you would say, that's a problem for me because the punishment doesn't match the crime. So just because for 80 years on the earth, I decided I didn't want to follow God, then at the end, I get sent out and I get destroyed or I get killed or I get put in punishment forever, that's not fair. And I hear that, and I get that, and I understand that this conversation, this part of the passage, is harsh to hear. But you know, one of the, one of the conversations I would have with that person is that the punishment or the, the crime, when we think about committing a crime and what that looks like, the punishment for that crime doesn't always equal in time. So if one of us or somebody that we knew or anybody, right, decides that they want to go out and take someone's life and they pull a trigger, right, the millisecond before they pull that trigger, they're innocent. The millisecond after they pull that trigger, they're guilty. It takes a millisecond to decide to make that decision. And yet, how long would they end up in prison? Maybe for life, right? So millisecond, life. When we look at justice in our context, it doesn't always mean that the time it takes to commit the crime is going to equal the punishment that's coming. And so what the king actually is saying in this passage, what Jesus is helping us understand is when we deny the king, we don't want him to rule over our lives. We don't want him to be in leadership over us. The king really just says, fine, you won't have to live that way. I'm just going to move you over here. It's not going to be what you want. You can have your decision. But I would also say this, that when we think the punishment doesn't fit the crime, we must also consider the reward for a life well lived. Think about those first two servants saying, go back to that. They give them a pound of silver, okay? It's, it's a good amount of money. 
it's not a ton. It's not a million dollars, right? It, it's a good amount of money, but it's not anything crazy. I think one of the commentaries I saw was like a year's worth of wages. So let's just say it's $60,000, okay? You're like, this is great, 60000 That's awesome. But it's, you know, it would last you for a year if you did nothing else. So you, you've got to figure that out. So it's a good amount of money, but it's not crazy. But the servants that multiply it by 10 and by 5, what's the reward? They get to be governor over 10 and 5 cities, so if you gave someone $60,000 at your business and you said multiply it, they multiply it by 10, you would not jump to, now you're going to be a governor over 10 cities. You'd go, you're a good business guy. I'm going to give you more money. Or businesswoman, you're going to get more money. But, but the jump from 10 times the amount to 10 cities is pretty massive. That's more faith than we would probably put in someone. And yet God says, when you show up and you will do what I've called you to do, I will give you beyond what you're even thinking because you're faithful. And so the punishment doesn't always equal the crime, we might think, but the reward also doesn't equal the work that's put in. God blesses us beyond that in an incredible way. And so as we kind of move towards landing the plane, I want to ask the question, how do we become the third servant? Like, what what happens in us? What are the traps we fall into that would make, put us in a space where we might look at what God's given us and say, I'm going to bury it. I'm going to hold on to it. I am not going to multiply it. And so I came up with three things that we might, we might process. The first thing is this, that we are too comfortable with the kingdom. It can be very easy for us as Christians to become comfortable with the spaces we run in. If you grew up like me, I grew up going to church pretty much every Sunday, and I grew up in Christian school. So after I stopped playing hockey for Coatesville, I had a lot of time where I was just in Christian circles, and life got pretty comfortable. Didn't interact with a lot of people I didn't agree with. Didn't have to deal, I mean, it was good. I didn't deal with some things I would have had to deal with in a public school system maybe or in other places, but I I just got comfortable. And there are times as Christians where we go, I like what I'm experiencing, I'm comfortable here, and I don't want that to change. I don't want people to come in who disagree with me. I don't want music to be played I don't agree with. I don't want this feel to be done. I don't want that to happen. Like, I, I'm comfortable here, and I don't want things to change. But here's the problem with multiplication. You start multiplying. You start reaching new people. You start doing different things. And all of a sudden, our view or our comfortability with the kingdom or the experiences we have, it changes. Because now there's more influence from other people. There's more people around. There's more ideas in place. There's more things. And so we get sort of comfortable and we say, this is who I want to be. And we get comfortable with the Christianity we know. And someone comes along and changes that. We get a little upset about it. But it's dangerous. And you know, I've heard this same phrase. By the way, it is not exclusive to any size church. I have heard this uh, at the church plant we were a part of when we were 30 people. I heard this at Gateway when we were there and they were almost at a thousand, right? People will come and they will say, I hope our church doesn't get any bigger. No matter how big the church is, people will say that. And one of the things I think when I hear that phrase is I go back to this passage and I go, how does this passage influence that thought process? Because at some point, we have to say, our goal is to reach more people. Now, people get worried. They get worried when people start talking this way or when I start talking this way because we think we're trying to be a mega church or something like that. People don't like that phrase. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is, I don't know how we look at this passage and ever say, we don't want to reach more people and have more people come to know Jesus and sit alongside us and pursue him with us. I don't know how we can say that. 
And so that's why we would say on our code, multiplication is a measure for success. Here's the second thing I think we can fall into is that we're afraid of failure. Now, listen, I asked a question at the beginning of the conversation. What would it look like for GFC to fail? There's times where you just have to try things, and sometimes they don't work. Right? We have to try new things to reach out, new conversations to have, new things to pursue. And sometimes we're not going to get the return we want. We're not going to reach the people we were hoping to reach. It's just, it's just not going to work. And we get afraid of when we're going to try something that feels uncomfortable or do something different, that it's not going to work, that it's not going to be what we thought it was going to be. And that, that worries us. But at the, same, at the same time, think about the fact that the, the master comes back and he looks at the person who multiplied by 10 and 5 and was happy with both of them. He, he said, this is great, and he gave him more responsibility. The problem was with the person that did nothing. And so I don't think God looks at us and goes, oh, if you don't reach X amount of people, you are failing. But I think God says, I've given you work to do. Like, you've got to do something with it. And when we get too comfortable, we fall into a space we shouldn't be. And here's the third thing, I think, is that we don't value those who deny the king. As the servants, the people that are represented by the servants in this conversation, when we hear the end of that story, we get to verse 27. It should cause us to go, I want everybody in that category to not be in that category anymore. Like, I don't want there to be people that after, they, after the king returns and, and they stand before God and he goes, bring them in. I want to get, they're gone because they chose not to follow me. Like, that should be motivation for us to go, I want no one left in that category. I want everybody to be in our category so the, so the kingdom of God continues to multiply because I don't want there to be those people. But when we start to think, I don't want to multiply too far to get to that person or to be that type of place or to be whatever, we start to think, I don't value those who deny the king or I don't value those who see the king the way I do. We leave those people behind. And I think that if we look at this scripturally, it's part of our responsibility to say, when we know those people exist, we've got to be the ones to reach them. Part of multiplying is pulling people from that side of the conversation that deny the king into this side of the conversation who recognize the king so that they can be multipliers too. Remember a little bit ago I said, you know, we've got... We've been given the same thing. We all have the opportunity to multiply. And here's what we've been given. If we have the Holy Spirit, we already have everything we need to do the work God has called us to do. So here's the unique thing. You've been given the Holy Spirit if you're a follower of Jesus. I've been given the Holy Spirit as a follower of Jesus. But here's the thing. You can uniquely do what you can do to build the kingdom. And I can uniquely do what I can do to build the kingdom. And neither one of us can do the same thing. You've been gifted for that in a different way than I've been gifted for that. You don't want me to pick up Landon's guitar and start playing and singing. You don't. Because God has not gifted me with that. Or to touch what Dan plays or to do what Mike does. You don't want any of it. But I have been given the gift of teaching and preaching. And so some of you would say, you don't want me to do that. And so what happens? When we all come alongside one another and we go, I'm uniquely gifted to do what God has called me to do. You've been uniquely gifted to do what you've, you've been called to do. And we all do that together and we multiply together. That means we're going to reach people in a far and wider range because we all work together and do what we uniquely can do together. And we've been given the gifts to be able to do that because if we're followers of Jesus, we've been given the Holy Spirit and he does that work in us. So again, go back to the contentment conversation. 
God's given us what we need. We don't have to look at other people and go, oh, we want to be that, or I wish I had that, or if I was given that. Nope, God has given us what we need. The question is, how are we going to use it? And this is a question for us personally, and it's a question for us as a church. And one question, one more question that I would ask to help us kind of like sift this in our brain is who do we want the kids of GFC to be in this story? Even if you're not a parent at GFC, you have been given a place of influence in those kids. They walk into church and they see you, whether you're a parent or a leader or anything, and they see you and they observe you. Kids are always watching you, right? They know, they learn, they figure it out. So they're asking the question, whether they think about it or not, when they come in here, they go, what do the people that I'm around on Sunday, what do they really think? And how do they really act? And what do they really believe about God? And the, and the reality is, when we think about this parable, they can fall into one of those three categories. They can fall into the category of someone who is multiplying the kingdom, and God would look at them when they're an adult and say, good job, here's more responsibility because you handled that well. They could fall into the category of the person who just hides it because they don't know how to multiply it, and we haven't taught them how. Or they could fall into the category of someone who denies the king completely, and Jesus sends them away, or the king sends them away. The question is, where do we want them to fall? I, we know where we want them to fall. The question is, are we doing the job to multiply with them what we would say we believe? That's the question. And how are we going to do it? And I've said to Andrew, I said to our elders the other day, this question for me is very simple. When we think about what we would do, how could GFC fail, that kind of thing, I'm like, I know the one measure for me to, to measure success is if we fast forward like 20 years and all the kids that are part of GFC, if they're serving in this church or another one, and we can see that they're multipliers. Like I could look back at everything else that happened at GFC over the last 20 years, and I would look at that thing and I would go, W, right there. I don't care what else happens. Because if we multiplied those kids to reach more people, that's what we instilled in them, we've multiplied as a church. So we did. So that's a goal. That's why we look at kids the way we do. It's why we want to reach them. It's why we build our environments. It's why we're committed to that. And the reality is this, just to wrap the conversation, if we fail at multiplication, we have failed to fulfill our mission as followers of Jesus. It's just what, what I see. When I look at this parable, that's the reality I see. And so I would say as a church, where we're going is we want to multiply. We want to reach new people that don't know Jesus we want to reach people who are far from Jesus so that they come back to Jesus. We want people who are multiplying as leaders. We want leaders to multiply more leaders. We want people who are serving to multiply people who will serve. Like We want to be a healthy group of people that multiplies and grows in a positive direction. Why? Not so we get bigger, not so we have more money, not so we get a bigger space. It's not because of that. It's because when we look at this parable, we know God's going to show up one day and go, what did you do with what I gave you? And the question is, did we multiply it or did we bury it? And our responsibility is to multiply. And so that means, guess what? We're going to have to do some work. It means we're going to have to take some risk at different times. But we have to. We have to go that direction. And we're already having some of those conversations and processing what that means. I don't know what all that means over the next five, six, seven, ten years. I don't know. But I'm saying that's where we're going. That's where we want to be.
And we want to be people that when we look back at this time, we look forward, whatever, and God shows up and goes, what did you do with what I gave you? We can look at him and we can say, we multiplied that person and we reached that person and we multiplied this kid and we had that person and we made them a leader and we had this missionary and we had this. Like we want to be able to say, we moved forward with what you gave us. So that's the question as a church family and that's the commitment I'm making to you. But here's the question for you. What have you, and it's for me too, what have you buried that God has asked you to multiply? There might be something, I don't know, but you've become very comfortable with just keeping what you've got for yourself. Think about, let's go back to the Adam and Eve example. There's an area of life where it would be really nice to just say, this is ours, no one else can touch it, and I like the fact that no one else can reach me here, no one else has to deal, I don't have to worry about anybody else's opinion, I, I just keep this for myself, and it's all mine. And it's a blessing that you could use for other people, but you're saying right now, nope, I just need this for me because it is comfortable and nice, and it's my nice, snuggly, warm blanket, and it's where I want to stay. And if other people get involved, if I let other people in, it's going to get messy, and I don't want to go there. So I'm just going to keep it for me. That's burying it. If it's something that you've been given that, that you could say, I could bless somebody with this. I could help somebody with this. I could, I could use this to multiply and reach more people for Jesus. When we look at that and we say, I'm going to keep that for myself, we're burying it. So we've got to do a little bit of like introspection and say, what have we buried? And this could be a talent. It could be finances. It could be a resource. It could be just the way God has gifted you to think. And you need to go into a space and use that to multiply followers. Jesus. I don't know what it is. But all the things that we've been given, we talked about this with the shrewd manager, we talked about it before, it's all been given to us to build the kingdom of God. And everything is on the table in our life when it comes to that. Everything. So then what do we do with it? And are we willing to use everything God's given us to build his kingdom? Or are we keeping some of it our own. Let's pray. Jesus, this story is, uh, like I said before, it hits, it just hits the nail on the head. It is, you don't make us question what this passage means. And I pray that the reality of that would, would sink into who we are as a church and as individuals. And I pray as we, you know, this has been a kind of a resounding conversation as we looked at these parables and, and you taught them over and over again. And so we look at them multiple times and we go, what are you trying to teach us? And this idea that what we have is not our own, what we have has been given to us by you and what we have is, is to be used, not to be hidden, not to just be uh, selfishly kept, but that it would be used to build your kingdom and to invest in other people and to multiply what we've been given that's a real conversation that we need to have and, and figure out what, what does that mean for us. And so God, I pray for us as a church that we, we would never be content with the kingdom as we know it. That we would want to see more people know you, more people worship you, more people grow closer to you, more people become multipliers for you. I pray for personally in our lives that we would look at what you've given us, the resources, the whatever it is, and that we wouldn't bury it and keep it for ourselves, that we would take it and we would leverage it and we would say, I'm going to use this because God has given it to me and I'm going to bless and use it to multiply his kingdom. And I just pray that that idea, that, that idea of multiplication of the kingdom of God, like that would just resonate with us personally and as a church body as well. 
We pray as we think about what that means for our church as a collective, like you just give us wisdom in what, what we do and how we do it. And that it would always be done, not as a desire to build what we want, but to simply pursue and see lives changed because people come to know you and have a relationship with you. In Jesus' name, amen.